Today on IFS Talks, we have the pleasure of welcoming back Derek Scott. Derek Scott is the founder of IFSCA, a Canadian organization dedicated to promoting the work of Dick Schwartz, originator of the IFS model. Derek has been working with and teaching the internal family systems model for 20 years. Along with his daughter, Maya, he presented as part of the plenary on diversity and inclusivity at the IFS conference in 2016 and has volunteered as consultant to the IFS Institute as part of the Diversity and Inclusivity Advisory Committee. Derek's first job as a counselor was in the early 80s when he began working on the front lines of the AIDS pandemic, developing anti-oppression workshops as clients and loved ones were dying. He has been championing queer rights ever since. Derek, welcome back to IFS Talks, and thank you so much for being here with us again today. No, thank you for having me, Tisha. Derek, welcome back. We have met twice in 2020. Together, we did a talk on grieving and another on spirituality. Amazing conversations. And that was right before this pandemic collective trauma. How have you been throughout these pandemic days? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I started off um, very panicked, had very frightened parts, and uh, I had managers that, that just went into overdrive. So I, right at the beginning of the pandemic, they were looking, they were predicting a four to five percent death rate. Um, and when I looked at the numbers here in Canada and the the rapidity of infection, if it had been a five percent death rate, we would have been utterly overwhelmed with death. And with grief, so I moved into, um, I got 60 volunteers, I developed an entire program, a volunteer-based program on um, offering counseling to the bereaved, the COVID bereaved, set up an entire program, uh, and thankfully, 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 it wasn't required because the death rate was not that high, but uh, I kicked into high gear professionally, and then personally, I think I, I think I made 300 different packets of soup and put them in the freezer because <laughs> I didn't want to go to the supermarket again ever. Yes. Um, so that was my initial response to the pandemic. An anxious one. Yes, everyone was quite scared back then. What's happened with those panicky parts now? You know, it's interesting, Tisha, they've uh, settled down in terms of the immediacy of the panic, which a lot of which was to do with the unknown. And when I was reflecting with them, it was very reminiscent of the AIDS pandemic in my community, uh, where we didn't know. We just did not know. We knew that, that many of us were dying, but there was no information about transmission. So just like in the early pandemic with, with COVID, we were wiping down surfaces. We didn't know if we could kiss. We didn't know if we could have sex. We didn't know if we could hug. Um, so those parts were, were triggered as well, those uh, parts back from when I was a much younger man. Yeah, I can see. Um, and now, because I have a specialty in grief, I've been invited to various places to present on uh, post-COVID and how to respond from a grief framework. But as I look at it, I don't believe we're post-COVID, and I don't believe we're post-catastrophe when I look at climate change and global warming and the research. And interestingly, the research with therapists, the older the therapist, the less concerned they are and the more likely they are to say that young people's anxiety is uh, disproportionate. 
The younger the person, the more likely they're to respond to uh, the belief that we are doomed. 56% of young people, this was a study from the University of Bath, of 10,000 young people, 56% believe that humanity is doomed. They agreed with that statement. So that's where I'm focusing now, not from the place of panic, but from the place of uh, this is the zeitgeist now. And um, what can we as therapists and as IFS therapists, how can we move work with our own parts that go into denial and disbelief, which is the most common grief protectors, um, so that we can not get overwhelmed, take in that information, and then better serve our clients. So I know that's not the focus for today, but since you asked, that's where my system's going. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Well said. Does it feel like it's like that anxiety is different than growing up um, in the nuclear era or the Cold War era? That sense of doom, is it... Does it have a different flavor? It does for me, yeah. Yeah, they, they, they always felt very abstract to me. Not to my parents, but to me mm. as a child. Yeah. Um, but there's nothing abstract about them. The thing about the nuclear era, the Cold War, was, well, they could push the button or not. Yeah. Right? Whereas with climate collapse, um, it's like the button's been pushed. There's no way to unpush this button. Yeah. Right? So, uh, so we need to adapt. Absolutely. Derek, you have been doing a great job teaching IFS now for 20 years. Your skills as an IFS teacher and consultant are internationally renowned. And one of your expertises is working with LGBTQ plus minorities. In your website, you offer many different resources in many different categories for IFS interested therapists and practitioners. Among those categories, you include some on gender and transgender, very interesting stuff. Derek, becoming gay or lesbian or any other LGBTQ plus minority continues being too challenging and even traumatic for so many children, adolescents and adults around the world, right? Yes. Gender biases and bigotries remain so alive in our world Mm -hmm. and in many places and countries, not only your freedom, but even your life can be at risk, right? Yes, yes. So the world is quite far from being a friendly place for anyone feeling the drive to authenticity. In your website, Derek, you offer an interesting resource, a video called The Drive for Authenticity, Mm -hmm. Understanding inner sexual orientation and gender diversity. Why this video and how can it be helpful? Well, the one of the reasons I made that video is I wanted people to get clarity that the messages of shame, of not being okay, of being a freak, of there being something wrong with you, are informed by the broader culture. And the broader culture is informed by um, certain values that we can describe as heteronormative. So it's better to be heterosexual. Um, Cisgender preferred, right? So it's better to be cisgender. Um, Patriarchal, so it's better to be male. White is better than non-white. And all of these uh, beliefs, which you can track back, they've been passed down for centuries by those in power. Um, inform the zeitgeist, they inform the ideology, which permeates every structure in the culture, including the family structure, the family system. And so 
the reason I made that video is I wanted people to become aware of a number of things. One is these are the values that we grow up in and our parts internalize them. Yeah. And that's the source of shame for LGBTQ plus people. Um, it's not inherent. There's nothing inherently wrong with us by any means, but our parts that are looking to the culture for, you know, how are we in the world and are we valuable and are we nurtured? The answer is no. Mm-hmm. So those parts take on those burdens, which which we then see in you know the disproportionate suicidality risk for queer youth, for trans youth, yeah. um, which is the result of those internalized values. So both wanting to uh, make that clear so that people have a way of recognizing that, and then thankfully through IFS unburdening that, clearing those false teachings. And then also to normalize internal gender diversity and internal sexual orientation diversity. So as you know, uh, I'm sure from the work you've done with yourself or others, when you go into the system, quite often a part will present with a pronoun that doesn't match the biological sex of the person. And that's just how it is. So clearly, internally, we've got differently gendered parts. And if you go back to the Kinsey research, although it's dated and highly criticized, um, it did acknowledge that there's a variety of sexual attractions. And I believe that different parts, therefore, have different sexual and affectional attractions, um, which then may result in a particular identity or more commonly now gender fluidity. I think gender fluidity depends yes. which parts are up at which particular time. Amazing. Their coming out can be a very, very difficult process. It takes years and decades for many, I believe, and some even choose never do it or never dare doing it. In the United States, you have a national coming out day. Uh, they do, and we do in Canada as well, yes. Yes, beautiful. Yeah. Are there developmental stages of for the coming out process that you'd like to name or maybe useful? For us to know. Sure. Um, as you're asking me, I'm remembering a, a card I saw in a, a queer bookstore a few years ago, and it described the coming out process. And it said, uh, first, everybody else knows, then you know, and then your parents know, right? It was a humorous card, of course, right? But there's some grain of truth in that. When one becomes aware of either same-sex attraction or that this body doesn't feel like the right body for me, if there's a, a a trans awakening, mm-hmm. because of the um, pejorative responses to that, which are internalized, the system may not want to acknowledge that, might want to uh, find ways to lessen that, you know, let that not be true. And there's the internal struggle. And then in terms of coming out to oneself, there's also the perceived loss, the feared loss. Will my family reject me? Will my friends reject me? Because I've been presumed heterosexual or presumed cisgender to date. It can be scary. And then there's the very real loss of heterosexual privilege, oh. you know, which you don't know you have until you lose it. Absolutely. But I remember my, my first job as a counselor at the AIDS Committee of Toronto. In my interview, they said, we want you to think about if you get this job, this will be on your resume. Mm-hmm. And you will probably be identified as a gay man. And do you want that? Mm, yeah. Any of the many of the other gay men I know and lesbians, they have a, a queer resume and a straight resume. So if they're applying for a job and many of their volunteer services have been in queer community, they won't mention those because you're applying for a job to someone who's going to look at your resume that you have not met, who could well be homophobic, and why risk it? Oh my gosh. It can uh, be so stressful. 
Yeah. That was coming out to self. Right? And there's often the assumption with coming out that, you know, oh, you've come out. You know, that's great. Uh, but coming out is an ongoing process okay. because of the, the presumed heterosexuality or the presumed um, cisgender. So um, to my surprise, when my daughter was uh, seven, uh, I was she was in a cooperative school, so I would go into the school as a parent helper sometimes. And it was usually me and the female teacher uh, on school trips. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I would be uh, asked to escort the little boys to the toilet. Well, there was a part of me that was very uh, worried mm. because I was presumed to be heterosexual because her mother's lesbian and we looked like a straight couple. That's what people would assume. Uh, so I had to come out to my daughter's grade two <laughs> parents uh, as a gay man because I was legitimately worried if somebody was homophobic and they realized mm. that I'd been taking their little boy to the toilet oh and gosh. they confused homosexuality with pedophilia, which is not uncommon, I could be in trouble. Right? So I came out, much to my surprise, to a bunch of seven-year-olds' parents and uh, was met with various you know, patronizing responses like, oh, I don't mind. Like you, I didn't ask if you minded. I'm not asking for your permission to be who I am in the world. Or, oh, my cousin's a lesbian. That's nice. Why are you telling me this? But nonetheless, it was my, you know, there's another example of coming out yet again, uh, because to stay to stay within the presumed closet would, would not have been safe for me. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Beautiful. So, Derek, do you find IFS a model with enough tools to help? LGBTQ plus people, or would you recommend any other adjunctive tools or other specific approaches to work with these minorities and help them? I mean, as you know, I love the IFS model because it's the only way I know that could actually permanently clear the shame mm -hmm. uh, from the system that gets taken in. So I'll give you a brief example of that from my own experience, but then I want to talk a little more broadly about it. So I did some work with a 12-year-old part of me. So this boy, and now just imagine this for yourself, right? 12 years old, noticing that you're attracted to the same sex, right? Not really sure what that means. This is in the 1970s in a small town in England, so nowhere to go for information. Oh. Um, but what that 12-year-old had been warned about was, you know, if there's a man that tries to pick you up from school or invite you into his car or give you sweets, don't get into his car. Mm. <laughs> and I remember thinking, Why would somebody offer me sweets? Why would I get into his car? But I, I could also sense there's something there about, you know, there's a dangerous kind of man, right? That as a boy child, I was being told about. And so this 12-year-old part of me is uh, in the local town's bookstore. He takes down a medical dictionary. Mm -hmm. He can't look up his dictionary at home because he's too worried mm -hmm. that the H page might look thumbed. So he goes into the bookstore, takes down the medical dictionary and looks up homosexuality. And what it says is, a deviant form of sexuality associated with pedophilia. Well, well, well. So he looked up deviance and he looked up pedophilia and was convinced that there was something wrong with him, was convinced that he was disgusting, and was convinced that he would grow up to be a child molester. And that was the burden that that 12-year-old boy took on. Yeah. Just hideous, right? But looking to the authorities for help, and that's what the authorities in the form of this medical dictionary yeah. Yes. told him. So when I was finally able to visit him via IFS, of course, and hear all the things he believed about himself, um, 
I was able to help him release all of that, all of that, and take in what's true, which is that he's this lovely, lovely, lovely boy approaching adolescence, um, loves people, actually, but particularly loves other boys and men in a particular way, in a very affectionate way. Mm-hmm. And prior to that, my system had been very vulnerable to homophobic comments, because any homophobic comments that came my way would trigger this 12-year-old, right, trying to get my attention, right? So, oh, yeah, you know, we don't deserve that. I'm disgusting, blah, blah, blah. Now, when homophobic comments come my way, I'm aware that they're about the other person. It's like, oh, you're homophobic. Isn't that interesting? Or you have homophobic parts. Isn't that interesting? Mm. Or not? But it doesn't trigger anything in my system other than that. So the gift of the IFS model is to be able to clear the shame which has been put on by the broader culture in the first place. But that said... I think what's often missed in the IFS model is the um, the therapeutic alliance, oh. right? The role of um, the the therapist, and particularly in terms of you know um, affinity or in terms of getting it. Okay. Right? So, um, so the model itself, great, but also there's the practitioner, right? And the practitioner needs to have what I think of as cultural competence with queer community. Okay. In order for to be able to work with us. So, do you believe someone in the coming out process for authenticity should get the help and support of an LGBT therapist instead of a straight heterosexual one? In other words, are LGBT therapists better equipped to this specific support? Um, well, I think it depends. I think the response to that is complex, right? So, um, if you are a heterosexually identified cisgender therapist, And in your heart circle, you've got friends, family members who are LGBTQ. Okay. Uh, you probably have a good sense of the community, right? So you're probably um, at ease. Beautiful. Yeah. But if that's not the case, if you don't have anyone in your friendship network or your family mm. that you have a good relationship with who's queer, just to use a shorthand term, then the only information you're going to have about us is from Main Street culture which is biased It is. Right? and stereotypes. So um, that's you're not likely to have cultural competence with us, and you're not likely to be able to provide a good service to us. You know, a few years ago, I presented at the IFS conference with Kate Lindgren, who's a lesbian IFS therapist. We co-presented on uh, gender and sexual orientation. At the end of it, Annabelle, one of the participants came up to me, IFS therapist, and she said, um, Oh, thank you. I enjoyed that very much. Um, I don't have any problems, really. I think you know, I'm okay to work with folks, but it was interesting. She said, the only thing is, when I think of two men kissing, ugh. Mm-hmm. and she, she showed me physically that she felt disgusted. And I thought a couple of things. A, one, why are you thinking about gay men kissing? How bizarre is that? And two, what makes you think it's okay to show me your disgust yes. about that? Yes. And three, You're dangerous. If you're seeing queer clients, you're dangerous to them. Exactly. Because you have a part that you've done no work with that experiences them as disgusting, and that is not okay. Right? So um, that's one of the reasons why LGBTQ therapists um, are, are, I would say, better positioned to work with LGBTQ clients. But even within that, Annabelle, if you look at LGBTQ plus There's an assumption there that that's a community and we all have things in common. Well, what we have in common is being rejected and vilified by mainstream culture. That's a trauma. 
But as a gay man, I don't have a great deal in common with a trans person who's heterosexually identified, right? Most trans women and trans men are straight. Mm. And, you know, I have much more in common <laughs> with other gay men than I do with trans folks, right? I have more in common with lesbians, mm. right? Although lesbians also have the double oppression, right? Of being marginalized around misogyny and sexual orientation, right? So there's limitations there in terms of what we have in common. But in terms of a community, lesbians and gay men have a sense of community that goes way back. And in the 1980s, when AIDS hit, those communities came together, right? And we had lesbians who knew how to advocate to get funding because they'd been working in women's services for years, rape crisis, et cetera, sexual assault. And we had gay men who were white and privileged right? and knew how to get access. So when those two communities came together, we were able to support each other and have a huge debt mm. to the lesbian sisters that um, helped us when we were dying. You mean in deities. Right? So, so there's a bond and community there, but don't assume that LG, LGBTQ necessarily means that we all have a lot in common. We don't necessarily. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Derek, I'm curious about how to support clients to, I don't know if this is the right term, but, but it's almost like to endure external family systems where there's judgment and a lack of safety when clients have come out and worked with their own burdens mm -hmm. to unburden their exiles but are you know required on holidays required in in life to be within families that are judgmental that aren't accepting yeah yeah this is something that comes up a lot and it seems as though it's really something to bear to bear through mm -hmm. But it brings up a lot of a lot of um, shame and family discord. Yeah, and yeah, I'm wondering how to best support clients. Uh, so often, you know, when when the coming out to oneself feels good and clear, and this is who I am in the world, and the burdens have been released, there's often a sense of enthusiasm that I want to come out to uh, the broader family. There's also, prior to that, there's a sense of, um, I'm not sure if I'm okay. So I'll tell people who are close to me and judge by their reactions if I'm okay or not. So if it's the latter, then you want to help someone come to the place where they do feel okay in terms of their, their inner world and coming out, because they are going to receive uh, responses to that. And those responses uh, will often be those of grief. Mm -hmm. And they'll be informed again by stereotypes. So you you may have parents, uh, particularly if they've grown up in a heteronormative world, that grieve the heterosexual child they believed they had, that may believe they're not going to have grandchildren. So they'll move into a loss response, right? Or the cisgender child that they believe they have. Right? And now they have to grieve their son in order to say hello to their daughter. Um, I don't think that's a negative thing. I think that's a process. Um, but it's one to be prepared for, right? because even you know, even parents that are positive may struggle with a sense of loss because they've lost a lot of the assumptions they had about their kid in order to be able to say hello to the kid they've got. So preparing someone for the that process in others, because that's a process that they've been in internally. They've moved through that process. But this may be brand new information to um uh, loved ones who are now going to go into a process. So just to be aware that the immediacy of the support may not be there. 
and then to be prepared to find ways to deal with that. They've also, you know, we've all, we all, I would say all, so maybe, have parts that know how to pass, right? So I'm out pretty much wherever I go, but if I'm in a hostile environment, I can pass. I can pass as straight, right? So um, those passing parts have probably passed with the family for a while now, and they still know how to do that. So you can call on those protectors if needed for a bit, until there's a sense of you know, I'm solid in who I am and how I am. Uh, and then also getting support from within the community and within, within friendship networks is really helpful because other queers get you in a way that straights may never. You know, one of the one of the things that we have to do as queers is we have to journey through all that internalized depression uh, to come through it and to release it. But then it also informs us of uh, the limitations of mainstream culture. Mm-hmm culture is profoundly limited in terms of its understanding of gender fluidity and and sexuality and that's why we've got things like you know the missionary position and um, heteronormativity Um, one of the things that's considered normal and preferable is monogamy Mm. why why it's a social construct. It, it, you know, if you go back in terms of the social construction of monogamy, it, it's about marrying well to a good family via the female, so that you could increase your land. I mean, that. I mean, that's how it is. But if you have an analysis of it and you have an awareness of your own sexuality, why would you choose monogamy? And so, you know, many gay men, for example, married. You know, relationship, primary relationship for twenty years. Both males may play away from home when they feel like it. They may introduce a, a, another into their sex play when they feel like it. Um, and they're married. Right? And that's that's very much normalized within queer community. Mm-hmm. Their straight relatives, however, you know, upon discovering that you know one of them plays away from home, they have all sorts of reactions. Well, I thought you were married, right? And so straight therapists may be surprised by that, right? And you don't really want to have to be educating your therapist or looking at your therapist's surprise. Or, okay. or, um, and in terms of our sex play as well, uh, much more exploratory than traditional um, straight folks. Absolutely, so, yes. One of my clients recently was, he was talking to me, he was playing with one of his boys and um, this boy he was playing with was concerned, uh, or he, my client was concerned because this boy was into fisting. And my client was worried that if he's fisting this other guy, um, he might do some damage internally to his partner. Right? So, well, so, of course, I said, well, let's look at your anxious part. So he had an anxious part that was up around that, and he had a part that he called his um, porn star part, right, that loved to play. So I said, well, listen to both of them and then see what needs to happen. And the conclusion he came to was his porn star couldn't really play to the, to, with the ease and the delight with which he likes to play because of this anxious part around fisting and, and what might happen to the other person. So on balance, he decided he was no longer going to um, be fisting with this guy. Um, now, all of which, um, of course, I get, right? But if, And he said to me at one point, thank God you're gay, because if I had to describe fisting to my therapist, this would be a much more difficult conversation. And I said, well, I, you know, I hear that, and I'm glad you've reached that decision for yourself because you also don't want to lose your watch. You know, that's a really nice watch, right? And he burst out laughing because that's funny. Yes. <laughs> but it's easy and funny between two gay men. Yeah. Right? Not likely to be quite as easy or not likely to, not likely to be um, put forward uh, from a straight therapist necessarily. So that's one of the places where, yeah, you know, if you if you can work with someone who gets or is in or part of your community, 
Now, even though I'm not trans, and even though most trans folks are straight identified, I'm familiar with trans yeah, people. Exactly. I have trans people in my social networks. You know, I have intersex people in my social networks, and I've had trans clients. So I have some familiarity with trans issues. Um, and, and then some I have none with, like some of the complexities of um, uh, medications, of taking T blockers, of the, the whole process that one has to go through. That's not something I have great familiarity with. So if someone's in that stage of their transitioning, whatever their transitioning looks like, I would look for a trans therapist to be available for them because I think they'd be better served. Absolutely. Derek Luke says Superman is coming out. It's good news, right? Uh, so DC Comics made the announcement on the United States National coming out day, so this week, the 11th October, that its latest Superman, John Kent, will be bisexual. We can read that in its next comic book, due to release in November, John will be pictured in a same-sex relationship with his friend Jay Nakamura. So, I'd like you to comment, Derek, on this detail. It says, once DC Comics said the pair will become romantically involved in the upcoming fifth issue after John mentally and physically burns out from trying to save everyone that he can. So, do you want to comment on this CD Comics note? Mentally and physically burns out from trying to save everyone that he can. Well, I think DC Comics are in the business of selling DC Comics, and I think they'll do whatever they can. I mean, look what's happened, right? In in making their primary character bisexual, um, it's now got, they've been internationally noticed, including in Portugal. You know, so I think, you know, using uh, queer identity as a way to sell comics, well, I'm not surprised, it's marketing. They're coming back to IFS for gay men and queer women, um, you just said a lot around uh, how much work therapists should do with themselves to be prepared and familiar with these groups of clients. So it requires specific therapist personal work and tools or a specific focus. What would you recommend to be the main focus or to be, to be minded of when working with LGBT plus people? Well, like I said earlier, you, you know, if you don't have queer folks in your immediate uh, social environment, you're probably better off referring to therapists that do. Yeah. Because um, it's it's cultural competency, right? And it's very hard to teach. I mean, first, you've got to become aware of your own cultural you know, um, lim limitations, yes. which we all have. Yes. Then be open to other cultures' ways of being. And then also to recognize those and normalize those as uh, equally valid. And that's That's a reach for a lot of people. That's a reach, right? Whether it's about LGBTQ plus people, whether it's about you know Muslims if you're Christian, or uh, you know people of color if you're white. And then again, you know, we we position people of color as if all people of color are the same, and as if all white people are the same, right? So, yeah. um, so even that positioning, like you know, Nigerian folks are way different from Jamaican folks. You know, uh, so there's a sense in which that positioning is necessary, but it's also very limiting, and it doesn't speak to intersectionality, right? So, you know, if if um, if my client is Muslim uh, and lesbian, um, then that's going to be uh, that's going to bring bring up some particular challenges internally for her, right? So, um, 
which are different from Christian lesbian Absolutely. challenges. And so again, you know, the, the more you, we can, the more we can open and learn about some of those um, intersectional pieces, the better positioned we are. But if if you've never, you know, sat with a, um, if you've never hung out with queers and and had that kind of fun frankly yes, <laughs> then, yes, yes. Uh, you might want to think twice about whether or not you're the best person for your client now that said if you're working with someone and they're beginning to come out you don't want to refer them on because um, they may feel like you know somehow they're not okay so um you know do the reading do the research there's a ton of information out there so find out what you need to find out be aware that you know nothing about this process you know nothing about what it feels like on the inside and that's fine um, do what you can to get informed about it so that you are positioned well to serve your client Derek you are running a four week IFS course for gay men, male professionals, you call it stepping out. Oh, yes. Comprehensive IFS course for gay men, male professionals. Can you share more the structure yeah. and the goals of this course? Sure, I'd love to. It's actually a four-month program. So I have this program called um, Stepping Stone, which um, it's an online program. It's four months, it's three hours a week. And the people that take it... Um, feel well prepared at the end of it to bring IFS into their private practice, which is great. And then within that, uh, I teach a cohort, which is exclusively for gay male mental health professionals, because that's where I identify. That's my affinity group. And the safety of that group, Annabelle, means that men can go deeper into what they need to go into, right? Um, and the commonalities, right? So for, you know, we all hid in high school we'll we'll develop very creative ways of hiding in high school if we could if we could pass those of us that are more femme had to deal with other kinds of bullying in high school if we could not always pass right but we have that in common we have internalized homophobia in common we often have um stories of being gay boys that like to dress up in common most of us had girls as friends in school we have that in common so there's so much commonality and there's so much safety with all of that just being known you know and within the mainstream ifs courses you know my um my courses at the ifs institute i was the only queer most of the time and um didn't necessarily feel safe, certainly didn't feel safe enough to really, you know, present how I would present in queer culture. And then also had to experience, you know, heteronormative teaching and then, you know, yeah. respond to it, mm -hmm. right? Because I won't just sit and collude with it. But here, here's an example. I was taking um, my level two couples mm -hmm. uh, weekend and the trainer said, uh, so imagine that you've got a couple in your office And uh, he is very assertive, and she uh, just defers to everything he says. Mm -hmm. right? So that was the introduction to this couple. Now, do you see what's problematic about that introduction? There's anybody? some cultural bias there. There's something there. Tisha, what are you picking up from that? Uh, well, it, it seems very stereotypical, heteronormative couple with um, a yeah, dominant male and submissive female and it's um yeah it, it's maybe a, a non-inclusive example yeah so how do you see it as a non-inclusive example um it's based on the assumption that the couple in your office is going to be straight 
Absolutely, right? So yeah, so that's so you need to back up from whether or not it's it's talking about stereotypes, the the positioning in the first place, right? You've got a couple and he. The moment that is stated, yeah, there's the assumption that the couple has is male and female. Otherwise, you wouldn't say he, right? So. So, you know, as a gay man, I'm sitting there and I'm hearing, you know, if you've got a couple in your office and he, and the moment I hear that, I feel excluded. Excluded, yes. And my community is excluded, right? The moment that, so then I've got a choice. Do I say something or do I wait and see if people who call themselves allies that are straight identified are going to comment or even notice? Nobody does. So I raise my hand and I point it out, right? And that's, uncomfortable mm. and that's risky yeah right and if i do it more than once oh there's that gay man again going on about you know blah 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 it's not always well received but i will say that particular instance the trainer was uh, mike elkin and he stopped and he started to share with the class because he became aware of it the very first time he became aware of his homophobic parts and i have never heard a straight man talk about his homophobic parts. And I was moved to tears by his willingness to do that. Yeah, that's Mike. Yeah. It was just love. But yeah, Mike is, is, you know, he's on, right? And he was willing to completely own what was going on for him. And another example of his internalized homophobia. So appreciated that. Yeah, beautiful. Well said. But those sort of instances are, are what make it unsafe for us. And they're, they're, I mean, there's many. Right, they make it unsafe for us to be. So to be running a, a cohort for gay male health professionals where they don't have to be concerned about that, I can't tell you. And the comments from the men, and oh, this feels so right. And I hadn't realized how much I've been holding in other trainings where that isn't possible. And so similarly, uh, my colleague Mel Gal Galbraith, she's a queer-identified woman, she's running a cohort for queer-identified women who are mental health professionals because... It's the same thing. I'm not going to run that because I'm not a queer-identified woman. Uh, and and I, I'll put out here with you guys, if anyone who's listening to this, I would love to be able to support uh, a trans-inclusive training led by trans uh, trainers. So if there's anyone who's trans and has teaching parts and would be interested in that, I'd be happy to let them have the whole training package. It's all ready to go. Um so that they could teach within their own community. Because uh, similarly, that sense of safety and that sense of people getting it just helps the learning environment. So, um, so that's why I've initiated those programs. Beautiful. And I imagine there's continuity with the cohorts beyond the four months. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, in a couple of ways. Uh, many of them want to come back and, and assist because there's supervised practice groups as part of the training and then many of them just form really good connections because as you probably know once you know you've got parts it's really nice to hang out with other people that know they've got parts <laughs> Eric, this journey towards inclusion and diversity looks as a long long journey we have come a long way but a long way to go as well Yeah, what is what is in what is in the future for you? Um, I know there's some retreats on the horizon potentially. Um, what else do you envision? It seems like you've got a, a lot of creative ideas. I do. Sometimes too many, so I need to rein them in. My, my, I, I have a file for my creative part. It's called my good ideas file, and I write them down and put them in there because we might get around to them one day. I like that. 
Um, at the moment, I'm really enjoying uh, being able to teach online. You know, one of the it's a mixed blessing, right? But one of the things that COVID has brought us is in my um, teaching groups. I have people from Singapore and Australia and Brazil, and uh, they're really, you know, international. And um, and currently, of course, it's very difficult to get into a level one with the IFS Institute. So uh, I have openings for the January programs, um, and I've been working with the Adler Institute in Toronto. So the Adler Professional Graduate School is offering a certificate program in applied IFS therapy. Uh, and my course is seen as equivalent to their foundation course. So you could take the stepping stone course and then move on to their broader clinical applications course. Um, so I'm thrilled for that and thrilled that, uh, that people have access to both my programs and then programs that lead to certification and the applied aspects of the model. I'm going to keep promoting within um, marginalized communities. I would really like to be able to offer this training package, especially to communities that um, that are impoverished, right? So the indigenous communities in Canada mm. and North America, yeah. if they want to uh, take this model and teach within their community, that's great. I was able to offer it to uh, uh, a group of Iranian psychotherapists in Iran. Wow. So um, yeah, with, with simultaneous translation, I was able to teach the model to 50 Iranian therapists, which felt great because their, you know, their economy is in the toilet, but I was able to do it at, you know, I mean, you're, vastly reduced cost right which was great so um the, the that's where i see myself going i think is continuing to teach and then facilitating that offering within uh, diverse and marginalized communities i think um that's where it needs to go beautiful Derek, thank you so much for having us and for all you are doing with ifs and it was again a joy to be here with you and tisha and I hope we can keep meeting and sharing this model, your work, and our lives. Yeah, you too. It's so nice to hang out with you too. And I hope, Annabelle, I, I was, as you know, I'd booked to come to Portugal when the, the that gathering was going to be there, right when COVID hit. So I do hope to meet you one day in Portugal and you can show me around your beautiful country. So that's my hope. Portugal is open now. Portugal is open now. <laughs> I've heard that. That's great. <laughs> Thank you, Derek. It's, it's always inspiring to speak with you.